Thanks again for listening in to Your Shadow Advisor, a weekly program about navigating higher education from a first-generation person of color perspective. I'm your host, Professor Daryl Wanzer Serrano. Welcome to episode one of the podcast. Uh, I want to start by offering a special thanks and shout out to everyone who listened to all the mini episodes of the last couple of months. It's been nice to know that people are tuning in, uh, and it's even nicer to know that I'll be building an audience with full episodes going forward. So today I want to talk in a bit more detail about the scope of the show. Uh, My hope is that you'll leave here today with a better sense of who I am as your host, why it is I'm doing this podcast, what general perspectives inform, uh, what I'll be up to each week, and what's coming next. Um, Now, I've addressed some of these issues in some of the mini episodes, um, but, you know, I want to I want to tackle them with a little bit more detail today uh, to give you that uh, that full episode experience. Uh, Plus, I mean, honestly, you know, with the topics that I'm addressing on the show, like things are changing and new information comes out, new articles come out all the time. Uh, and so, you know, the, the nice thing is that even if I've, even though I've talked about the hidden curriculum a little bit before in a little bit of detail, uh, you know, new things come out and I'm able to talk about it uh, in more detail and with more specificity in a show like today's. And so that's, that's, my, that's my plan here today. But to start with, I want to talk about, you know, who it is that I am and why I'm here talking to you uh, on, this, on this podcast. So I'm a first-generation Latino college student. Um, well, I'm not a college student anymore. Now I'm a tenured professor at an AAU Research One University. Uh, but when I started, uh, I really did not know what to expect about college or university environments. Um, I'm the first, as far as I know, the first in my family on either side, uh, going as far back as I can figure out, uh, to to go to uh, to go to college, to go to university, um, and to and to finish with a four year degree. You know, I don't want to go too far back in, in my education. I mean, I, I could go back to you know to in in primary school when uh, I was read as having a speech pathology and having to do speech therapy. But really, I just had a Puerto Rican accent uh, that they didn't know how to deal with because my brother and I were like the only Latinos in the school. I could talk about uh, about middle school uh, and about uh, you know the kind of the class that really made me want to be a teacher, which was Mark Vetter's social studies seminar, uh, where, where really I started developing a a, a, tr- a real true passion for learning and for history and for archival research methods. I, I could talk about the experience I had in high school, which was much less positive uh, when you know a uh, when I was seated next to. Uh, a, a neo-Nazi skinhead who used to draw swastikas and burning crosses on his uh, on his binder and would mutter racist things to me, um, which is what prompted me to leave my high school and uh, finish my high school credits doing a dual credit program called Running Start in Washington State. But you know, I'll really start with uh, you know, I really want to start with graduate school because that's the focus of uh, of this podcast. You know. Talking to people who are in grad school, uh, who are early career, um, and people who support those folks who are in grad school and in early career positions. As a first generation student, I really didn't fully know what to expect going into graduate school. I mean, thankfully, I had the experience of being, a, you know, being a debater in high school and college, and in a lot of ways, 
debate, uh, especially you know the, the kind of the kind of debate I did, a policy debate which is very research focused, uh, that prepared me well to uh, to enter graduate school because it taught me uh, how to do focused research. It taught me how to advocate for myself. Um, it taught me how to engage ideas uh, and engage in critical the critical back and forth of questions and answers. Uh, so you know, in a lot of ways, academically, intellectually, um, I was you know I was I was pretty well prepared to enter graduate school because the graduate school experience from that standpoint um, was a lot like debate, you know. You know, digging deeply to uh, to ideas, to difficult theoretical concepts, having to process large volumes of reading and information, um, and be able to uh, present my ideas both orally and in writing. Um, you know, I, I felt fairly well prepared for that. I didn't really feel particularly well prepared for academia. Um, as a first gen student, you know, I struggled with things like just how to be a good student. Um, truth be told, I wasn't a great student as an undergraduate. I focused my attention on improving in debate, uh, and that meant a lot of calculated decisions to let my coursework kind of slack. I also made bad decisions like taking, you know, taking classes that didn't challenge me sometimes because I knew they would be easy and then getting kind of mediocre grades in them because I was totally bored. The thing that excited me about grad school is being able to really focus on those studies uh, because I wasn't going to be doing debate anymore. Um, and, uh, and, and being able to really like see what it was like to kind of like just do academic things and really focus uh, strongly on doing those academic things. Uh, but I didn't know really how to do that particularly well. Uh, it was something that I'd have to pick up from uh, from other students, from advanced students, uh, from faculty. Um, and the other thing that, that, that I wasn't particularly well prepared uh, for was being a Latino in higher education, right? Um, you know, there, there, there weren't many of us. I mean, heck, still to this day, uh, I'm one of only a couple of tenured Latino men at uh, AAU uh, universities, right? The kind of the, the highest, uh, the highest tier of, of those top tier research universities. Um, I'm only one of a couple Latino men in my in my discipline, right? At those kinds of institutions, and certainly there weren't, you know, there weren't many folks like me, um, first gen Latino, uh, in my graduate program, uh, or you know, or in grad school uh, at my institution who I ever who I ever ran into. Uh, and so those kinds of support structures, right, of how to uh, succeed right, as a first-gen, low-income Latino in a, you know, in a profession that doesn't have many folks like you, that I didn't have a lot of access to in my program. And so, you know, so I had to start building some of those, those networks, those, uh, the, those mentorship networks on my own. And it, and it was really, you know, thanks to wonderful people in my discipline through the, you know, I'm, I'm a communication scholar. 
And, you know, our, our big national, one of our big national conferences or organizations is the National uh, uh, Communication Association. In that organization, there's a, a kind of like a, a research-focused division called the uh, the Latina Latino Communication Studies Division. There's also a, a, a caucus called the La Raza Caucus. And so I started attending those meetings and meeting those people, uh, meeting other people like me. And that's when I finally felt really, truly started to feel at home in my discipline. And then when my research program changed also, um, and I, I, I started working on a research project that had to do with uh, with Puerto Rican activists. I've talked about this in one of one of the mini episodes. Um, uh, my my kind of you know first research re- real research projects um, uh, as a professional were uh, on the the New York Young Lords, uh, where I have a, a edited collection and also a monograph. Uh, when I started doing that work and interacting with those folks and getting involved in service in that uh, in, in in those units uh, in in my professional organization, that's when I started learning uh, really from those mentors uh, how to succeed, how to thrive, right, uh, in this field that is ultimately you know not particularly welcoming to people like us, and so. Fast forward, you know, as I enter the tenure track and 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 start doing uh, and you know more kind of national service work and be more reflexive in some of my scholarly practices, uh, you know, that's when I really, really, truly start to realize just how much work uh, the field has to do, and all academic fields have to do in this in this area. I mean, at the end of the day. Right, uh, advanced degrees, right, advanced graduate degrees that are preparing people to be faculty uh, in their different disciplines, uh, for the most part, aren't you know particularly well suited uh, for the task of diversifying their field because these are you know we're we're, we're working out of institutions uh, that are historically predominantly white institutions. Um, and that you know, and that in some sense are inherently conservative. Now, I don't mean this in like the politi- like a you know, a kind of capital P politics of Democrats and Republicans or something like that. What I mean is that disciplines are inherently trying to preserve themselves and what they look like. Right? Uh, they're resistant to change. Uh, and I, I think that that's true not only in, in terms of the, uh, the the theoretical perspectives and methodological perspectives that uh, that make those disciplines cohere as disciplines, uh, but I think it's also true in terms of the demographic makeup of those disciplines and the interplay between those demographic makeups, right, and the methods and theories that inform those fields, right? There is a kind of like synergistic relationship between these things. And so, you know, when you have disciplines that are uh, that are that are kind of like being guided by uh, uh, predominantly white institutions uh, that are producing scholars in the image of their path of those disciplines pass, uh, then it's no surprise that, you know, even when we see uh, a kind of you know, rapidly changing face of higher education that's becoming much more diverse at the undergraduate level, uh, as the nation becomes more diverse, uh, at the graduate level, that diversity isn't really being mirrored, right? So at a place like my current institution, at Texas A&M University, we have, you know, 25% roughly undergraduate students who are Latino, right? In a state that is that graduates uh, high school students at a rate of about 50% Latinos. But still, 
the undergraduate population, about 25% Latino. But you know, our graduate student population across the university uh, is more like, mm, I think it's somewhere around 13%, right? And our tenure track, tenure and tenure track faculty uh, are more like 7%, right? Uh, and so you can see that, you know, although the univer although universities are kind of changing to recruit undergraduate student population that more closely reflects the demographics of the states and the country, those changes aren't happening as fast at the graduate level and certainly not happening as fast at the level of the professoriate. And that's a real problem because when we don't have uh, faculty who uh, who kind of like, you know, to, to put it bluntly, who look like the student population, uh, that student population has a harder time succeeding, right? And so we know that when students don't see themselves, right, in one way or another at the front of the classroom, when when those first-generation students and those, and those first-generation Latino and low-income students don't see themselves at the front of the classroom, they have a lower sense of belonging and they have a harder time seeing themselves succeeding Right in a timely fashion compared to uh, their white peers, uh, whose you know whose families went to college and uh, and who have those models of, uh, of 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 kind of success and pathways into professional careers uh, to look up to, right, and to model themselves after. That's you know those issues right are what prompt me to uh, to to talk about these things right within my own field and also what what ultimately have prompted me to start this podcast because I think that that this con these conversations don't happen enough right within our own uh, individual fields but more broadly aren't happening enough especially with graduate students and with early career faculty uh, who need to know that that there are ways to approach right, uh, the educational process and their career pathways that uh, that that can that can you know, help ensure greater success, but also they need to know that uh, that there's people like them out there, right, who are going through the same kinds of things, uh, who have a shared experience, uh, and be able to find some strength in that. I mean, that's part of how we honestly, that's part of how we find our people in our disciplines uh, and in our careers. Now, one of the issues that I'm kind of that I'm kind of dancing around here, right? When I'm talking about you know knowing certain things to be able to succeed, is I'm talking about what uh, what scholars like Jessica Clarko uh, call the hidden curriculum. And I talked about uh, about about Clarko's work a little bit on one of the mini episodes. Her book, A Field Guide to Grad School: Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum, uh, it, it really is fantastic. I strongly recommend you check it out. There's a link for it uh, in the show notes. And when she talks about the hidden curriculum, right, she, she's talking about, and I'm quoting here from the first page of her book, uh, quote, the things you're expected to know or do, but won't be explicitly taught. Uh, now, these things, she continues, stay hidden in part, quote, because it's taken for granted. The hidden curriculum tends to involve ways of doing how to do, write about, and talk about research, how to navigate complex bureaucracies, how to ask others for help when you feel lost. She continues, those ways of doing are easy to take for granted because once scholars learn them, they enact them in subconscious ways. And once those ways of doing are taken for granted, they become a lot harder to teach. Now, one of the things that, that Calarco points to uh, in expanding on the hidden curriculum and how it stays hidden 
is, you know, why when we know that there's the hidden curriculum, it's not just like made explicit more often? Well, one of the reasons she points to is that there's an incentive structure in higher education, right, that doesn't really encourage uh, mentorship that, uh, that demystifies that hidden curriculum and makes it part of the explicit curriculum. That you know, ultimately, especially at research-intensive universities, right, where which are the universities where uh, where PhDs are being produced, faculty are rewarded for their research, right? Um, and you know, there's that old mantra of publish or perish. Um, as problematic as it is, there's truth to it that if you know, if if you're not producing enough scholarship, right, if you're not producing both the quantity and quality of scholarship. Then you're not going to get promoted. Uh, you're not going to get tenured, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's an incentive structure, right, that encourages faculty to really focus in on their research and not to spend extra time, right, uh, to see it as kind of a zero sum trade off uh, in terms of spending extra time mentoring uh, students uh, and demystifying that hidden curriculum. And so a lot of it stays hidden um, until you know until a student happens to maybe like ask the explicit question, right? So the hidden curriculum is is a kind of like, you know, in a lot of ways, a kind of like cognitive thing, right? That is, uh, it's about learning, uh, learning things, learning how to do certain things. Uh, and the idea here, the kind of like implicit assumption is that if you only, you know, if you just know these things, right, then you're able to succeed. If if only the students know, like, this is, you know, you should do X, Y, and Z things as a graduate student, then you're able to be a good graduate student and get that good job and be a good professor, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, we see these kinds of attitudes reflected uh, in the in the kind of like trade press for higher education, too. So uh, in preparing for this episode just a couple days ago, uh, there is a, 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 an opinion piece in Diverse Issues in Higher Education uh, titled Admitting First Generation and Low-Income Students is Not Enough. And uh, the, the author of this piece, and I'll link to the piece in, uh, in the show notes, uh, does a nice job of kind of showing that, you know, that, that, hey, like recruitment is not enough here. It's not enough for our institutions to just be, uh, to be diversifying the student body, bringing in more first-generation low-income students, because those students who, uh, who we bring in, right, don't have the, uh, the, the kind of resources uh, coming from family uh, who've been part of higher education in the past, who have, you know, these high-paying, uh, you know, ideally high-paying uh, kinds of career paths, career trajectories uh, that the students know, know about. Uh, the first-gen students don't have access to those things, right? Uh, and so, you know, and so in some ways, as as the author of this uh, of this piece notes, they feel behind from the moment they start. She says, quoting here, she she writes, they feel that they don't stand a chance when compared to their peers who come from privileged backgrounds. Uh, and the reason she points to is that they don't have access to uh, to this hidden curriculum of professional norms and and context. Um, that uh, the, the don't get explicitly taught right by the schools that they come from or the higher education institutions that that they're that they're in, and so the solution right the the kind of implied solution is well you teach them that hidden curriculum right you teach them about what career paths are open to them you teach them how to succeed uh, as undergraduates and, and and we could extend that to as graduate students. 
and uh, and and if we do that, then they're able to be uh, they're able to be more successful. Well, the problem here is that uh, that these 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 explications of the hidden curriculum fail to account for structural inequalities, right? That can't be kind of like knowledged away. Uh, that just because like someone knows like the ways to succeed as a graduate student or as an early career professional. That doesn't mean they have the same access to people, to resources, or to an assumed competence uh, that was necessary for uh, for advisors, for mentors to kind of like take them up and assume that they're going to be able to succeed, right? And so those structural inequalities that are kind of baked into historically predominantly white institutions mean that the deck is kind of stacked against you know many of these first generation students of color right especially the ones that are going into graduate school and you know someone who captures this really well uh, and and I'll be uh, I'll be interviewing her uh, you know in a short while uh, for a future episode um, is Victoria Reyes in her book, Academic Outsider, Stories of Exclusion and Hope. Um, and I'll link to that book uh, in, the, in the show notes as well. Um, and, you know, she engages the question of, uh, of the kind of usefulness of the, of the hidden curriculum throughout the book, but especially in her chapter uh, called Conditional Citizenship. Um, and, you know, there she kind of pushes back a little bit against uh, the hidden curriculum as a kind of guiding concept or metaphor uh, for understanding kind of like why uh, higher education and graduate school are kind of like messed up a little bit. And instead turns to, uh, to academic citizenship as kind of the key frame. And, uh, and, you know, quoting here from her book on page 43, uh, she says, I use the term academic citizenship since I see legal, institutional, cultural, and political forms of membership as entwined, unable to be disentangled from one another. Academic citizenship concerns not only the rights and responsibilities of those in the academy, which are differentiated and tied to rank, whether that be grad student, postdoc, adjunct, lecturer line, or tenure faculty. It also encompasses the sense of belonging, access to political participation, and sets of practices and claims making related to academic life, all of which are racialized, gendered, and classed, right? And so Reyes' starting point um, in, in contrast to the hidden curriculum, which is, you know, which would say, right, if we just know these things, then everyone's on an equal play, equal, uh, equal footing. Raise a starting point. Say no. Actually, higher education is a classed, racialized, gendered space. Uh, she draws from uh, sociologist Victor Ray's work uh, that w- that says that uh, that organizations are racialized, uh, and that that if we ignore the ways in which organizations are racialized, uh, we're really kind of missing a big part of the picture that structures how the hierarchies and organizations kind of work, right? Uh, and so. By pointing to the the this the this really fact that organizations, including higher education institutions, right, are racialized, gendered, and classed spaces that have these hierarchies that are set up uh, in ways that uh, that privilege those uh, from uh, from kind of you know. Uh, you know, from from privileged backgrounds and from elite backgrounds, and that seek to kind of reproduce those structures, uh, sometimes explicitly, oftentimes implicitly. The, when we start from that understanding and that knowledge, well, that leads to a whole different set of questions and a whole different set of strategies for how we navigate 
uh, higher education, and how we build toward more ju just futures. And so um, I really look forward to, uh, to, to, to airing that interview uh, uh, in a few weeks from now, uh, because I think that, uh, the, the, what Professor Reyes has to say uh, about how we can create more just higher education context uh, is, uh, is powerful stuff. But that's also like the motivator for me to be doing this podcast uh, for, for y'all. I think it's important for us to demystify that hidden curriculum. And I'll still talk about the hidden curriculum because, uh, because that is stuff that can be taught, that we can learn, and that does help put us on a better footing. But we also have to be uh, cognizant of and interrogate uh, the, uh, the problematic structures that shape what higher education is and that limit what it can become. Um, and so part of what, you know, what I see myself doing in, in, in my work on this podcast and elsewhere is a kind of harm reduction. We have to kind of understand that, that look, there's probably some, some pretty significant major structural transformations that have to happen to really have a more just higher education context. And until that point, we can do things to minimize harm and to create opportunities uh, for people uh, to, to kind of like work with what we've got and do the best that we can. Uh, and so I hope that through uh, the episodes that I'll air uh, every week, uh, addressing questions that you have about like how to do graduate school, how to do um, uh, the professoriate, uh, and, and how to entertain the kind of widest range of options, right, in these contexts in which we're operating in, I hope that I can kind of help uh, make this place a little bit better. To start with that, you know, since I know it's the start of the semester for those of us on the semester system, I want to offer just a, a, a couple little snippets of advice uh, for people at different stages uh, in their higher education career. Uh, so to, new, to people who are new to graduate school, my, my one piece of advice this week is to read strategically. Uh, Check out the advice in books like Calarco's Field Guide or, uh, or Shore's Grad School Essentials. I'll link to that one too. Uh, about how to read more efficiently and selectively as you get used to the different workload um, and the different style of engagement of ideas that happens in graduate school. Because it is a kind of different, a really different world from what most of you will be used to from undergraduate or even from master's programs. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're an advanced graduate student, maybe you're comping or dissertating soon, my advice to you is keep your head down right, and focus on your work. Don't get distracted by shiny things like the opportunity to teach fancy new courses and new service opportunities. Just get your work done and do it well to position yourself for success as you get closer to the job market uh, and to finishing out your time uh, as a student in higher education um, and, and become a, a professor or enter uh, industry beyond academia. And to new faculty, uh, my main piece of advice to you is to establish patterns and figure out who your people are. Right? If this is your first term somewhere, your time is going to be occupied figuring out where to get groceries, order food, get your clothes dry cleaned, uh, how to find your way around campus, what offices on campus do certain things that you need done. And, you know, you, you're also needing to figure out, like, who your people are, who's going to be that support network for you, uh, who's going to, to help make the place feel like a home for you. Uh, and so, you know, spend your time developing those, uh, those networks and establishing work patterns and habits that will enable you to really hit the ground running next term, because a lot of this term is going to be lost in the swirl of the kind of, like, newness of your place. 
all of that said, uh, I'm excited to be uh, to be launching uh, the podcast. I'm excited to, that this is the first full episode. Uh, next week, we're going to have uh, an, a, a wonderful interview uh, with Chantel Martinez and Bryant Taylor. A couple of folks who uh, who who know a lot about mentorship, both from the perspective of being a mentor in Chantel's case uh, and uh, being a mentee in Bryant's case, and so we've got a great conversation lined up about what makes for a good mentor-mentee uh, relationship uh, and how to kind of make the most of that uh, in uh, in higher education. So uh, please tune in next week for uh, for that very special episode. Uh, the week after that, we're going to start running. I'm going to run a series of a few episodes about public uh, service loan forgiveness, uh, which is a program that uh, that as you as you know if you've been listening to the mini episodes uh, that I just recently benefited from. And so I want to talk about uh, going to have a, a special guest, uh, a couple of special guests who know a lot about public service loan forgiveness um, and have a, a host of resources uh, to set you up for success in that realm, um, and then also to get you thinking about like. Like how much you should be taking out in student loans. Like what are the advantages and disadvantages to that, uh, and how do you uh, to set yourself up for financial success um, after you're done with your education? Additionally, since I try to keep the show as listener driven as possible, uh, please send me your thoughts and questions. Hit up the show on Twitter or shoot me an email at your leisure. And if you do have a question, please send it to questions at yourshadowadvisor.com or head to the website to submit an audio question that I might air on the podcast. Uh, That said, that's it for today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling up to it, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. Thanks again for listening in. I'll be back with more next week.